Hello and welcome to the Veeam Community Podcast 2.0 or Veeam Community Podcast Reboot or is it Remaster, Resurrection, what are, what are we even calling it now? Yeah, DK, we're still working on the name, coming up with something snazzy to call this, new graphics, a new landing page, and so on and so on. But regardless, we really didn't want to wait, so this podcast is coming back right now and we'll tune it as we go. The person you just heard is Melissa Palmer, a senior technologist on Veeam product strategy team, a VCDX, no less, a SpaceX enthusiast, and a person who signs my paychecks. How you doing, Melissa? <laughs> What's up, DK? I'm good. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. So I am DK. I'm also the guy from the product strategy team. From now on, Melissa and I are going to be hosting this show. And before we dive into this first or actually pilot episode, Melissa, why don't we discuss what's actually going on with this podcast and what's new about it? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, even though we're still deciding on the name, you can rest assured that this is still going to be the Veeam Community Podcast and really going to still have that community focus. We're going to be discussing relevant topics, invite cool experts, react to the news, you know, a bunch of different things. We're still going to be focusing on data centers, cloud technologies, and in general, just kind of investigating how things you're used to work, but on the back end. Unlike previous episodes, we're going to establish the format for this show and release the episodes on a schedule, making it more of a regular show than kind of just sporadic audio talks as something cool happens. This is the pilot episode and we're still working on the format. So if you have any suggestions, questions, comments, want to tell us we're doing a great job or that we're absolutely terrible, please let us know. You can contact us on Twitter or leave a comment on the podcast. Especially if we're doing a good job. Yeah, tell us we're doing good. <laughs> Are we ready for this, DK? I'm ready. Let's roll the intro. So you read the title of this episode, you know we're going to be talking about the server side of the video game industry, and we already have a very interesting guest for this episode. So to cut the chase to this talk, I'm not even going to tell you this news about probably the biggest data breach in the video game development industry. If you've heard about the company called CD Projekt Red, the developers of the Witcher series and Cyberpunk 2077 game, you might have heard that the hackers were able to steal a bunch of internal documents relating to HR, legal, accounting, investor relations, and so on. And what's more, also a full source code of the Witcher 3 game, Cyberpunk 2077 game, and their collector card game Gwent, and demanded the ransom for this. Do we even call it ransomware if this is the ransom to not publish the source code online? I don't know if it's ransomware. I mean, it's following the same tactic, but they just stole the stuff, right? They didn't encrypt it, make it unusable. They just grabbed themselves a nice little copy and were holding it hostage. Yeah, let's just Basically, call it right? data breach for now. Yeah, data breach. So CD Projekt Red refused to pay the ransom, and I can totally agree with that. And as they claim, they cut off remote access to internal network resources, as they claim. But here are some consequences that the company stated in one of their posts on the website. One is reputation damage, and I can totally see that, because many gamers were disappointed, the investors were disappointed, it's not a very good position to be in, for sure. The other one that is not very obvious from the beginning, and I will quote here, 
limiting the possibility of exercising your rights as a data subject under article blah 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 of the GDPR to receive a copy of your data or to request its deletion. So basically you are limited in exercising your right to be forgotten. What are you gonna, are you gonna call up the hackers and be like, hey, can you delete my data please? Yeah, they don't care. Yeah, the other one is financial loss, which is again obvious, relationship with investors and sales and everything. That's totally understandable. And the last one, which is kind of funny, but not funny at all, is receiving unwanted correspondence or spam, as they say. Just a bunch of emails probably were leaked or maybe a bunch of addresses, we don't know. So my point is, whenever you see our marketing materials about the seriousness of ransomware or data breaches, that's actually nothing to sniff at. The consequences are real. And as a person who's been following the news since the beginning, I see how this attack has delayed many of CDPR projects, their DLC, their new versions of their games, and it has resulted in a financial loss that is actually real. But I actually have saved the best for last, if there is any best in this situation. The hackers also have encrypted the servers, so I think it is actually a ransomware, but CD Projekt Red reported that the backups were intact and they were able to restore the data. How cool is that? So not only did they steal it, they stole it and then they encrypted it. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Although we don't know the exact details of the breach. Yeah, this is one of those things where we're, I'm sure, never going to know the details because let's face it, who wants to be a case study for being hacked? No one. So what, are, what do we take away from this? Always have a backup. Okay, I'm writing it down. <laughs> but more importantly, test those backups and test your recovery because it's not a matter of if you get hit by ransomware or some kind of cyber attack. It is one in these days, um, but there's more to security than just having copies of your data and being able to restore it, right? Backup isn't the magic bullet, but if you have that copy of your environment to restore, you're in a really good place. But security is complicated, right? There, there's so much, and I get lots of questions from customers about, you know, what happens if someone gets the password or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, there's other layers of security, right? You need to make sure that um, you're following the principle of least privilege, right? The Windows administrator who go is in charge of patching the Windows server probably shouldn't be able to restore anything from Veeam, right? If that's not their job, if it's not part of what they do on a daily basis, they shouldn't be able to log into the Veeam server, period, right? So principle of least privilege is a huge one, um, making sure people only have the access they need to do their jobs. But there's so many different facets of security. It's It's really crazy. Actually, I just remember the case about a company whose data center had a face recognition system. And when a person who entered that data center was not recognized by these cameras as an employee of that company or a person who has access to the data, the system automatically made a snapshot, just in case. That's pretty cool, actually. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Anyway. With the sheer amount of data stolen, CDPR claims that any personal data remained intact. Unlike some other recent user data leaks that you probably have heard about. Facebook, half billion people. LinkedIn, half billion people. Clubhouse, is is Clubhouse still a thing? I don't know, is it still a thing? I used it for a day. 1.3 million. Although LinkedIn and Clubhouse claim that the data was scraped from the services rather than actually leaked. Uh, that's semantics, you were still breached, sorry. Yep, changing your password might be a good idea. It's actually a very good idea. All right, so I have something that I'm not going to tell you about. Uh, as DK mentioned in my intro, I am a big SpaceX fan. 
I'm a big fan of Elon Musk's entrepreneurship. Come at me. A lot of people don't like him. He's very divisive. You either love him or hate him. I'm in the love him category. But I want to talk a little bit about Neuralink, right? So you remember the Matrix, DK? Like it was yesterday. You know where they have the jack in the back of the guy's head and they plug him in? I think they plug in Neo and they're like, you're gonna learn jujitsu or whatever. They teach him everything, right? Yeah, that one looked very proprietary to me. Very proprietary. But anyway, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that Neuralink is basically seeking to do this kind of thing. Um, they talk a lot about, you know, how they're going to connect to people's brains, what the interface is going to be like. And it's kind of evolved since he first unleashed it and uh, unveiled it. And, um, you know, one from over, just going to like have fiber optics going into your brain. So maybe now we have this little type of interface thing that's going to go there. And, you know, the particulars are still coming out. But a few days ago, they actually did a pretty crazy demo. Now, I've done some crazy demos in my day. But I have never done a demo this crazy. Like maybe I should incorporate this somehow. Um, there was a monkey and he was playing a video game with his mind, right? So he was literally playing Pong with his mind. So the, basically what they did is they uh, installed the, do you install them, implant them? I don't know what the proper verge to use is when you put something in someone's brain, right? So they placed these Neuralink transmitters in the monkey's brain and they basically started recording and learning what he was doing, right? By having him play this game. And eventually they were able to basically translate that from the transmitters in his brain, can say, watched what he was doing, playing with the joystick, all that kind of good stuff. They translated that and it got to the point where he could play it with his brain directly to the game system. Now the demo video, the monkey's still using the joystick, right? But the joystick's not connected because that's how he learned to play, right? Because like when I move my hand like this, my brain transmits all this crazy data. I mean, I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but like the three throughput of data you would need to move for people's brains is crazy, right? There's a lot of data up there. Um, but you know, when you move something, neurons fire and they record that and they're starting to capture it. So what are the actual practical uses of this possibly down the line? Um, besides the cool matrix style of plug in your head and hey, now I know jujitsu or the cloud or whatever have you. Um, I think they're really trying to help people who are disabled, right? So people can who maybe can't use certain body parts can use their mind, right? With just their brain. Maybe that becomes a difference of I can control my computer or my phone or whatever using my brain instead of having to use some other, you know, device that isn't as accurate. Because, you know, your brain is pretty accurate, right? You're getting the, the input or, or the output directly from your brain to wherever it's supposed to go. Um, so I think it's something really interesting. I think it's something that we're going to keep an eye on and see how it evolves over time. And uh... I would be personally very interested to see the gaming experience that uses direct brain input. The current esports championships like CSGO or Overwatch, based on how well you're actually using your mouse as a mediator between the brain, your hand muscles and the game itself. And there's server latency and all this stuff. But removing these mediator from this process would be actually very interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Like, so personally, I'm a little klutzy. And while I enjoy things like Counter-Strike, uh, I'm not very good at it. I'm just not. I enjoy them, but I wonder if maybe if I could use my brain to configure things and play things, maybe I wouldn't be so bad. 
Well, if we measure the brain power over the twitch muscle reaction, you'll have much more chances to win. Yeah, exactly. So now we're going to be joined by our special guest for our first episode. His name is Drew Como. He is a Veeam Vanguard and has some really, really interesting experience in the gaming industry. Hey Drew, thanks for joining us. So of all the entries that you have on your resume, what we are most interested today is the times that you were a senior infrastructure manager in such companies as THQ and Take-Two Interactive. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. For those of you who don't know, THQ is a publisher of such gaming series as Darksiders, Saints Row, Metro, and Homefront. And Take-Two Interactive owned the developers of GTA, Red Dead Redemption, and also the developers of Civilization, XCOM, Borderlands, Bioshock, WWE, and that's just the number of games out of my mind, there's probably much more than that. <laughs> All I know is I call Red Dead Redemption Grand Theft Horse. Hey, that's a good way of looking at it, yeah. So even though I consider myself to be a video game enthusiast, I don't know very much about the server backend of video game industry. So my question is going to be rather general, I guess, or rather dumb. Could you please describe us what the data center of a game developer company looks like? Maybe the application stack, the server requirements, and so on and maybe actually how it evolved over time. So it's really interesting because with the advent of newer technologies that we have today, what it looks like today compared to what this looked like when we were really pioneering a lot of this technology back in 2004, 2005, it's tremendously different. Uh, you know, now it's all virtualization and cloud. Back then, you really didn't have much virtualization. There was really no cloud. Yeah, you had Amazon and certain things, but Azure was a completely different, you know, product and platform at that point. So uh, over the last several years, things have changed, you know, drastically. Um, you know, let's go and I can give you a little bit of a, a better picture of, of where we came from. And then, you know, we can kind of, you know, move forward. You know, one of the first games that, uh, you know, I was involved with, uh, you know, when we're talking about multiplayer was, uh, you know, essentially the first game at uh, THQ when we had Chaos Studios. And it was a game called Frontlines Feel of War. And it was a military infantry open world first person shooter. And uh, that was really interesting because at the time when we formed that studio and we were building the technology, we were, you know, a, a secret project, a secret studio. Nobody was doing game development in New York City aside from a couple of mobile, you know, kind of system, you know, mobile developers and so on. Uh, so we had to stay completely underneath the radar. And I remember a lot of those phone calls initially with like server providers because we were talking about multiplayer and all this great stuff that we wanted to do. And I'd call up these server providers, companies like, you know, your Rackspaces, Pier Ones, you know, server companies like that and saying, hey, you know, uh, I can't tell you what I'm working on. I can't tell you who I'm from, but I want to talk about this great server stuff that I need. And it was a very difficult set of conversations very early on because they were like, you got to tell me a little bit more than that. I'm like, but I can't. It's so secret. Um, you know, and then over time, you know, you start to, you know, things get announced and you could start talking about a lot more stuff. Um, you know, so, you know, 
back then, uh, server technology was in its infancy. Now you have these servers that have, you know, dozens and dozens of cores, but back then you didn't. It was basically a single processor, dual processors, and that's really all you had. You didn't have all this kind of cool stuff that you have now. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, again, before cloud, you know, I'd reach out to these server providers and, uh, you know, we'd have to, you know, essentially rent these full servers, you know, and and depending on the amount of players that you'd need, uh, you know, or at least want to support, we're talking about hundreds of servers in all of these locations. Game like Frontline's Field of War, I think we launched in four locations, had hundreds of servers in each of those locations. You know, we had servers in the US, we had servers in Paris, we had servers in Japan, and I think we also had servers in Hong Kong. This goes back a number of years, so you know, excuse my memory, but I believe that's the kind of the four locations that we had. And uh, you know, we had to deploy builds, you know, geographically across, and you know, and so on. the The interesting thing with that game is that really pioneered a lot of the things that you see with multiplayer gaming today. We were essentially the first game to do 32-player multiplayer on a console. You know, prior to that game, you started seeing a lot of, you know, these higher-end 32, 64-player, you know, experiences on PC, but when it came to consoles, you know, especially, you know, I mean, even before the PlayStation 3, more kind of around the realm of, you know, the Xbox 360, you know, you had these, you know, you know, they, they were basically running the games on the console itself. So you'd have these like listen servers or player servers as, as sometimes they're called, where, you know, people would be connecting into that Xbox 360. So that 360 is basically playing the game for the player and then it's also allowing to act like a server for all of these other, you know, players to join in as well. And obviously, the performance on a 360, as well as the, you know, bandwidth of the person that's actually hosting that game, is is very limited. So, you know, we, that's the experience. And I was, you know, very early on, maybe a little bit naive, you know, kind of understood, you know, where server technology was. I said, you know, I want to provide an experience for the players, for you know, to to mimic PC. I don't want this. 32 players on PC, 16 players on a console. I want to have 32 over here, 64 maybe on PC, but 32 on a console. And, you know, very early conversations with Microsoft were, they were like, hey, we've got this experimental thing. It's called XLSP, which stands for Xbox Live Server Platform, which allows us to kind of connect Xbox Live kind of to a data center. And you can use any data center that you want, but we've got to vet all of your technology and so on. And that is essentially some of the the underpinnings of a lot of the technology that we used to basically do those links to provide those greater number player experiences, you know, for the players on that game. And a very, very stringent process. I had to fly to Microsoft with, you know, kind of one of the lead designers. We were up in Redmond doing these pitches. And essentially, they were like, hey, this sounds legitimate. We're going to give you guys a shot to basically run this. And, uh, you know, we were really the first game uh, to really kind of push the boundaries of that. And then, you know, kind of off the heels of that, they wanted to continually do improvements to the service to really start allowing other 
you know, developers and publishers to start using the technology as well. We didn't have the exclusive, but the one cool thing that I had was the exclusive ear of the people that were developing this themselves, you know, with themselves. So I had phone numbers and email addresses directly for the developers and, you know, several people on the Xbox Live team. So I could say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. And I was actually just kind of, you know, getting the ear directly of Microsoft saying, I think we need this. I think we need this. And they were building a lot of this support and functionality directly into the application for a lot of the things that we ultimately wanted to do. So that was, you know, kind of really cool. So, you know, as that kind of evolved and the technology evolved of all of that, I mean, now it's, you kind of get into the same type of thing, but, um, you know, now it's all about, you know, virtualization where we don't have those restrictions that we used to have where it was like, hey, you know, I can only run a few games on a ser- on a physical server and be limited by the cost of that, the player counts. Now it's, it's almost infinite, uh, you know, especially with, you know, as I said, you know, virtualization and now cloud services, you know, you could spin up these multiplayer game environments inside of, a, you know, AWS, Azure, GCP and get even better experiences and better performance than what I had back in the day. So just seeing the evolution of all of that has just been phenomenal because, you know, you kind of look at where we were, you know, not too long ago. I mean, this is, you know, kind of 2005, 2006. And yes, in the internet age, 15 years is 50 years. But, you know, just going back just a short little time ago, seeing where we were and seeing where we are now, I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing where technology has brought us today. So whenever I read these news about, say, the new Destiny add-on comes out and the people cannot join the servers, I would assume that they just go to the cloud and spin up more workload. But in your case back then, I would assume that scalability was much more of an issue than it is today. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, years ago, speaking of scalability, I mean, years ago, it was like, hey, we need more servers in this location. I would have to go out to a data center and say, you know what? I have 300, you know, physical servers in this one location. I need 100 more and I need them in the next like three days. You know, when they're like, okay, well, we don't have the hardware, we've got to order it, or we've got the hardware, we're going to give it to you now, you know, bring it online, things like that. You know, those were the struggles I had back then. Now, you know, to your point, it's very easy. It's like, okay, well, I can just go into, you know, an AWS, an Azure, a GCP portal and say, hey, I just need, you know, this many, this many, you know, these servers spun up. And, you know, you can even handle a lot more of this with, you know, you know, automated processes, you know, where we were just kind of getting into that, you know, years ago where, uh, you know, again, nowadays you have this where it's like, hey, you know, if you're seeing, you know, uh, across all of your servers, you're aggregating this user count and, you know, you're getting to the top, okay, you know, go ahead and provision automatically, you know, no user intervention, maybe we're sleeping, uh, you know, you know, 10 more servers. And then when the user count drops below a threshold, basically now spin those instances that are no longer being used, basically get rid of them. So you have this ability to automatically fluctuate scale and reduce the environment where back in the day, I was getting phone calls at three o'clock in the morning because, you know, three o'clock in my time is, you know, 10 a.m. somewhere else and people want to play. So I was getting calls three o'clock in the morning saying, we're out of capacity. We're out of capacity. We need more servers. And I'm like, okay, uh, where, where's, where's that number? So it was a, a very different time back then. And again, you know, technology today is, is, uh, you know, if I had the technology of today, 15 years ago, 
the the amazing stuff I would have been able to do then is, is again just mind blowing. I think this is actually the most classic cloud use case that people ta started talking about 15 years ago, right? It was about, I remember, you know, being a customer still and talking about the cloud and, you know, all these people coming and talking to me like, it's all about scalability yep. and the ability to burst into the cloud as you need to for mm -hmm. whatever reason and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like that was one of the first selling points of the cloud, right? That scalability without having to worry about rack and stack, all that kind of stuff. I remember absolutely. we were doing something internally that we called like ready infrastructure. And we were trying to build out like these pods where we had capacity in our data center on demand. So when a new project or a new something came here, okay, we use what's already racked and stacked. And then we go order more to kind of replenish our ready infrastructure stock. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is like the classic you're right. If you would have been able to do this like 15 years ago, it'd be crazy, right? This is like the classical cloud use case. And it would have been a lot cheaper too. I mean, you know, really? back then. I really? Mean, oh, that's true. Back then. I'm trying to remember how much a server was 15 years ago. They weren't cheap. No, no, no. I mean, I was paying, if I remember correctly, uh, and all the locations were different costs. I mean, very similar to what you have today. You know, if you're using AWS in certain availability zones, certain regions, there's a certain price point. Same thing with Azure and so on. I mean, I mean, I'll give you like an example, if I can remember these numbers correctly. Like I was paying on a monthly case, like a server was like $400 for me. And that was basically, you know, kind of streamlined across the US. And, you know, when I was doing servers in like Paris and, and, and so on, uh, um, I think it was still $400, but it was adjusted for, you know, conversion rate and so on. My servers in Japan were extremely expensive because bandwidth at the time was extremely expensive in Japan. Uh, I think I was paying $1,100 per server, you know, per month. So, and I had to support a certain amount of players. So on average, my server spend for just that one game was in the late tens of thousands of dollars, if not in the early hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that was for one title. You know, uh, you know, when we were trying to figure out what we can do, because you know, just like you were talking about, like reserved capacity. You know, again, we didn't have that concept, but with some of our providers, I would say, okay, this is the capacity that I need right now for uh, for what I'm doing, you know, for this game, it's live and whatever. But I was like, if I need to bring up additional capacity, you know, like the example I used a little bit earlier, which was, you know, calling a, a provider and saying, I need, you know, 10 more servers, 20 more servers, 100 more servers. What they allowed me to do was to pre-purchase servers keep them as like hot standbys so I would have code deployed to them to basically spin them up at a you know a moment's notice but only pay for a percentage of them because they weren't really being used so I think but still I think I was paying 50% of what the server costs even though it was in a you know a, a you know a downstate so you know if my server cost was $400 a month I was paying um I was paying $200 a month for what you consider to be like this standby, you know, instance with right now, you don't have that with AWS, Azure. It's just like you want something, you know, click, 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 up, 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 do whatever you need to do it. And it's, again, you know, way different now. So, you know, really, uh, again, where we were and where we are today, just, you know, insane. You know, we should come back to this conversation in 15 years and I would bet a hundred bucks you're going to say the exact same thing in 20, what, 36 <laughs> about the technology of 2021. Abs absolutely. <laughs>
So the next thing I wanted to talk about is the technology behind the multiplayer component of the game. So I would imagine that the technology and the application stack for a game developer is pretty much the same as any other company producing anything else. But when you need to have a lot of players on the same server and and to make sure they have fun experience without any lags, without any glitches, without any hiccups or anything, what kind of hardware or software design you have to keep in mind to provide them seamless experience for their multiplayer games? That's a really good question and it all depends on the game. Um, I would say, you know, if you're looking at a game like you had mentioned Destiny 2 earlier and any games that are essentially have like a persistent world, you can look at games like Destiny, you can look at games like Warcraft, you look at games like that that have this persistent world, you need to have lots of servers in lots of locations, but the, the horsepower behind the infrastructure of games like that are, are really not demanding. When you're talking about games like first-person shooters, like games that I've been involved with, you know, the Frontlines, Feel of War, uh, you know, games like Home Front, um, you know, and then, you know, games from like, you know, fellow publishers at the time, things like, you know, the Call of Duty and Battlefield, you know, those servers have a, a much higher uh, you know, kind of requirement, you know, and it's not only just from a, you know, CPU memory of the server itself, a lot of that actually plays into, you know, bandwidth, right? You know, some of the games that, you know, again, things like Destiny and, and Battlefield and, and, and things like that, all of their bandwidth requirements are going to be very, very different. Some games where, uh, you know, if it's a persistent world, maybe their, uh, you know, maybe their um, their bandwidth requirement is something around the, you know, the 100 to 120, 150 millisecond range. When you're talking about first-person shooters, the lower the latency, the, the better the experience is. You know, we were always shooting for, you know, kind of what I would always consider be sub-70. Sub-70 milliseconds is always going to be that uh, that greatest kind of uh, multiplayer experience when it comes to first-person shooters. Anything above that, again, some games have a little bit of a higher tolerance, some games don't. But uh, if you know, in a lot of the games that we worked on, if you didn't have really sub-70 and you were starting to get into the 100, 120, 150, 200 milliseconds, that's where people essentially pop off the map and then pop somewhere else. Uh, there's a lot of rubber banding that happens, you know, things like that. So, you know, again, CPU and memory are, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure behind it is, is really important, but I would say, especially with what I would consider like those Twitch games, first-person shooters, things like that, bandwidth is probably the highest, uh, you know, kind of consideration that somebody should focus on when they're focusing on infrastructure. That's funny. That's like a big parallel to the enterprise space as well, right? There's a lot of apps. Sometimes the number's a lot lower, and we're like 20 milliseconds of latency mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. stuff starts to get weird. And if you're getting involved with different types of replication and all that kind of stuff, exactly. you really got to pay attention to that latency. So it's funny, right? Completely different industry, something different. I don't know. I, I, I love video games, and I'm more of a play-by-myself person versus play online. I did do, like, the WoW and Diablo <laughs> and StarCraft. I was more into that stuff when I was younger. But I've never actually thought about that before today it, it's just blowing my mind and um it kind of goes to shows right all everything and i'm having like a mind thing right now right everything has those same good design principles behind it whether it be that first person shooter game whether it be more that um exploratory map kind of game whether it be your enterprise applications right all these principles are the same um, no matter where you are and what you're doing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I've been out of the game industry for a, a, a 
a series of years now. Uh, you know, I now work for, you know, a vitamin company. So a lot of people, I, he went from video games to vitamins. So, you know, I'm, I'm totally in kind of the more corporate space now. Uh, you know, the game industry, you know, I, I, I spent a, a lot of time there and, and did some amazing pioneering, uh, you know, kind of, you know, technology and, 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 and built lots of really great stuff. But I'm like, you know, after a certain amount of years, it's just like not for me anymore. Uh, you know, let's let the new generation basically take over and, and start to show me a lot of the cool stuff that they're, they're, that they're doing. I still, you know, advise and consult and, you know, answer questions and, and give them some guidance on a lot of games, you know, for various companies that just kind of, you know, message me over LinkedIn or email me saying, hey, you know, running into this thing, what would you do in this situation? I give them a little bit of advice. You know, it's still, you know, I, I still love the industry so much that I still want to contribute and see a lot of, you know, people, you know, be successful. But, you know, again, to, to, to your point, you know, Mel, um, you know, I still run into those same type of latency requirements today where, you know, one of the focuses for me and, and my current company is to move a lot of our, you know, workloads out of the data center. I want to get out of the data center business. You know, I don't want to run facilities anymore. You know, I want to start really kind of focusing on cool technology um, and use a lot of the same kind of principles that I've built over the years, again, you know, from the game industry into, you know, a lot of the modernization of a lot of the, you know, just kind of business line of business types applications that we have today. And we still run into these latency things where, you know, it's like, I want to run this application, you know, in the cloud. I want to move it to AWS. I want to move to Azure. I want to move it to these, you know, kind of new ways. But, you know, these applications have sub 20, you know, you know, millisecond latency requirements where WAN bandwidth is just not fast enough, even with things like Express Route and things like that. Still not fast enough because the latency component is still there. But, you know, if I run it on-prem, I'm below a millisecond. So I still have those same challenges today with just dealing with manufacturing applications that are not related to games at all. I remember back in my childhood, we were playing StarCraft over the dial-up connection, which was painfully slow. Maybe we played together, DK. You never know back then. Heck <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. And we had the latency of probably not even milliseconds, but rather seconds. Yeah. And we were totally fine yeah. with that. We had like barely, I don't know, like 20 FPS. And we were totally fine with that. Today, if you have like more than 100 millisecond latency and less than 60 frames on your screen it's totally intolerable by today's yeah, standards. Yeah, I mean, I think our tolerance has changed a lot too, right? And I and I think it I think it definitely has. I mean, over the years as technology has improved and you know evolved, you know, things that we were okay with years ago is not acceptable at all. I mean, the you know, when we were releasing, you know, games on the Xbox 360, you know, like launch titles or launch Windows titles, you know, games that were being released within the first year, it was like, all right, well, get as close to 30 you know, 30 frames per second as you can. You know, now, you know, games have to be, you know, kind of locked at 60, you know, 60 FPS or, or, or greater, you know, or or they get ragged on, you know, on sites like, you know, your, your gaming sites, the Kotaku's, the Metacritic's and so on. They're like, the game is, is great, but, you know, uh, you know, it, it doesn't run at 60, you know, 60 frames per second. So, you know, you know, I think, you know, that has changed quite a bit, you know, where we were more tolerant to those things years ago because we understood the limitations of the technology or sometimes we wish we did. Um, you know, nowadays, that 
you know, the tolerance is, is no longer there, right? It's, it's today. It's like, you know, I, I want to order something, you know, I'm going to order it on, you know, Amazon or whatever, and it better be here tomorrow, right? You know, our entire mindset as, as, as people have changed and, uh, you know, that does play into, you know, kind of the gaming industry and everything. Yeah. Okay. And the last topic I wanted to talk about is more of, uh, Melissa's area of expertise. My time. I wanted to talk about security. And by security, I don't mean like data breaches or data leaks, but also something related to the gaming industry, like Mm -hmm. cheaters and uh, piracy and all these kind of things. Can you tell us a little more of uh, how you were dealing with those? Sure. So there... There's a lot to talk about in 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 this space. I mean, you know, we I guess we could break it up into into sections. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, let's let's just talk about you know kind of the piracy side for for a moment. I mean, back then, uh, you know, we we did have digital distribution through you know uh, you know providers like Steam and so on. It's it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of people that were still attached to physical media. They still wanted the discs and so on. And I'm a purist and I. I always like to hold something. I want to have a disc, um, you know, with that. But, um, you know, I mean, that helped out quite a bit. Uh, you know, when we're talking about discs, um, you know, we did, you know, do a lot of, you know, kind of encryption on the discs. There was copy protection on the discs. You know, a lot of companies were using something called like Securom, you know, which was, uh, you know, manufactured by a company called Sony DADC, which was, uh, you know, a division of Sony. And essentially, if somebody copied the disc, there was keys that were on the disc, things like that, that couldn't be copied properly with a CD burner. So, you know, that kind of thwarted things quite a bit. Um, you know, it didn't block people from trying. I mean, you know, prior to some of the games I worked on, you know, even before the games were released, all of a sudden, you know, we've got people, I mean, this is kind of before even BitTorrent and so on. We would see, you know, images of our like ISOs that were available on the internet where, you know, some of the developers would say, I know the game hasn't been released yet, but the ISOs are available. And we're like, where? And we found out that it actually had to do with a lot of the supply chain where, you know, at these manufacturing facilities, there would be somebody that would be there that would steal a copy off the line and then they would crack it open, bring it home and then do malicious stuff and share it and spread it and so on. So, you know, that did happen. We had to become, you know, quite ingenious with some of the, you know, kind of measures we came up with sometimes we just had to just kind of accept it you know um you know we had a uh a, you know a, a you know kind of a you know when you installing like a game like you know Frontlines or Homefront you know you had to type in you know what we would have like a, a 5 by 5 key which was actually the the 5 by 5 algorithm was written by me and one of the developers at, uh, at Chaos, which was really cool because I never did it before. And I'm like, I want to do my own. I don't want to just take something off the shelf. So we built the algorithm behind it. And sure enough, the same person that, you know, had pulled the the, the, the copy of one of the games off the line, uh, you know, said, hey, here is how that key gen works. And they released, a, you know, they released a key gen and it was like, all right, you know what? We're not going to, uh, we, we came at this at the, the zero hour. We said, okay, we're not going to worry about people that are going to host their own games or play the single player campaign with you know multiplayer games playing on our dedicated servers playing on things that would make a difference ranked servers leaderboards things like that what we're going to do is i know what keys that i actually released 
you know, to all the providers. So what I did is I actually then had this, you know, kind of allowed list block list kind of thing. So I knew what keys I generated. So I added in a patch, you know, we added the ability to basically check this approved database of these keys before they can go online. So that was one way that That's we basically thwarted, uh, you know, people from, you know, online piracy was that again, you know, we had to accept the fact that, you know, okay, yeah, the game is out there and people are going to play through the single payer campaign, but maybe there's the ability to convert those people that stole the game initially. Maybe they'll buy it when they can't go online, right? We wound up, there was some metrics that was, you know, that was investigated. I don't remember what the numbers were, but there was a, 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 over 50% conversion rate to the point where people stole the game initially and then we converted those into paying customers. So that was a, a really good thing to see. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the piracy thing. Uh, you know, at some point you have to accept the fact that, you know, yeah, people are going to try to steal something that, you know, either they can't afford or just simply don't see the value in paying for. And you kind of have to except that that happens um when it comes to cheaters on the other hand that's uh you know quite interesting kind of um uh you know you know endeavor um there was one company at the time that was uh creating a like a middleware there was a lot of people that were integrating this middleware into the games that were essentially there was this clearing server and there was this you know there was like these hooks inside of the game where if somebody did something you know uh it can trigger this hey this person's not playing either a legitimate copy of the game or they're trying to you know uh you know give themselves unlimited ammo or something that we would call is like bullet sponge which was your character would take damage but he would never die so you would see you know the red warnings on the screen saying you're getting shot but essentially these players would never die um you know so you know you can kind of pack those kind of you know if you're watching the game executing you can see like a lot of the the hex values and so on very similar to what people would do like with an nes with a game genie or something like that watch those values going through and saying every time i fire this hex value shows up or every time i get shot this hex value shows up so what happens if i start to kind of tweak these values and you know give myself unlimited ammo or give myself unlimited health so we had to watch out for things like that but there was these companies that actually had this middleware that you could plug into the game and they would you know watch out for things like that or they would watch out for people that are you know kind of known uh, you know, uh, you know, known people that essentially would take advantage, you know, across all the different games that, you know, let's say this middleware falls into. Because, you know, if somebody's going to cheat, you know, in game X, they're going to cheat in game Y, they're going to cheat in game Z. So there was a lot of this kind of crowdsourced, you know, information. And then over time, this software wasn't really well kept up. There was a lot of problems that the developers were actually running into integrating it, and we were actually fixing a lot more bugs in this application. So, you know, we were giving the bugs back, giving the, the, the patches back, and they were like, well, thank you, but, you know, they weren't really seemed to be, you know, kind of a partner of ours. So, interestingly enough, um, 
in a conference room between a few different people, I said, hey, you know, to, uh, to people that were like my server providers, because we'd have our, you know, the owners of the server companies kind of come in, you know, once every six months or whatever, just to have a, a quick sit down, powwow, here's what we're doing, here's where we need to go. And I said, you know what, you guys would make an awesome kind of taking these two different server companies with two different, uh, you know, initiatives. One of the guys was based out of California. Another one of these guys based out of, uh, out of Rotterdam in the Netherlands two different ideas and we were like hey it would be a great idea if you guys came up with your own type of anti-cheat and this is the kind of current experiences that we're running into but these are the missing things that are not in that piece of software that I would love for you guys to integrate that company was formed and was just sold to Ubisoft about two weeks ago Unfortunately, I wasn't part of any of it. So I got an honorable mention and a thank you. But, you know, I don't know what the terms of the deal is, but uh, Ubisoft basically bought the technology. I did get a thank you. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was amazing to see you know, something that was on a whiteboard in my office of these ideas into a product, which was then later purchased by one of the top uh, you know, uh, development and, uh, and, uh, you know, development and, and, and production companies, you know, that are extremely well respected. So, you know, we, you know, again, we do see piracy in the industry. We do see cheaters in the industry, but we like to think that we are, uh, one step ahead of them. We like to think that we never are, but we like to think that we're always one step ahead of them. But, uh, you know, they have really smart minds. We've got smart minds too. Uh, we try to just kind of thwart them as, as, as quickly as we can so it doesn't dilute the experience for the other players that are trying to play these games remotely and legitimately. So it's a creativity contest, you versus them. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And we see these with, you know, things like ransomware and everything else. Here we go again, right? Everything comes back full circle. The parallels between the gaming environments and the real kind of, uh, you know, non-gaming environments, the, the parallels are uncanny. Okay, that's all the questions I had. And I enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you for your time and good luck in your vitamin company. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. That was really interesting, and I know I learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, and to round this episode up, Melissa and I are gonna recommend you two articles to read on your own that are also connected with video game industry. The first one is a very, very deep dive of a GTA Online enthusiast into why this game is loading for so long. If you've been playing this game, you probably know about it. It turns out that 70% of the time a single thread is processing a 10 megabyte JSON file with 63,000 items. And that shouldn't take this long, 63,000 items in JSON file is not a lot. So this very long and very deep article dives under the hood of the video game data structure. Just as a spoiler for you, the author of this post tried to fix this parser issue himself and he was able to cut down the loading times from 6 minutes to under 2 minutes. And on March 15, 2021, Rockstar, the developer of GTA, has actually included this fix 
into the game. So, Melissa, here's the community power that you and I both appreciate very much. That is pretty cool and a really good example of community power. All right, so let's go back to data centers and clouds. By this point, you're probably familiar with containers, you know, not the ship that got stuck in the canal a little while ago and started all this drama. Um, containers, Kubernetes, cloud native, us at Veeam, we talk about this stuff all the time. You've probably also heard of AI workloads and deep learning frameworks. One of them is called TensorFlow. I have a really great article from NVIDIA. And when I hear NVIDIA, I immediately think gaming GPUs, right? Truth is they do a lot more than just gaming, right? But NVIDIA is making its GPUs accessible to cloud native developers to act as the accelerators when they're training complex deep learning modules. I mean, one of the things that has always fascinated me about AI, besides the fact that, you know, Skynet is coming and all that good stuff, is kind of the infrastructure underneath supporting it, especially as they're training the models. So check out this really interesting article about NVIDIA doing something other than gaming. Yeah, and just as a side note, this morning I was reading an article about NVIDIA actually allowing to use their GPUs on the VMs that you run on your local machine. Back then you couldn't do it without some workarounds and today it is actually possible. You were getting the special error when NVIDIA was detecting that you're running GPU under your VM, but not anymore. Finally, I guess. All right, so this marks the end of the pilot episode of Vim Community Podcast 2.0 or Vim Community Podcast Reboot. Or as I like to say, my new catchphrase is reorchestrated. <laughs> reorchestrated, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know what we're calling this thing yet, but if you have any feedback, any naming suggestions, if you liked this episode or if you hated it, uh, please let us know. Thank you very much for your time and we'll see you in the next episode. See you next time.